Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. So David, what pray tell do the UFO occupants, be they extraterrestrial, crypto-terrestrial, ultra-terrestrial, what concerns them about O'Hare Airport in Chicago? I don't know that it's O'Hare Airport. I think it's just Chicago in general because they're all big fans of the original Blues Brothers movie and they want to see that mall where all the cars got trashed in that great scene in the film. I think that's why they're, they're going to Chicago or it's because uh, they want to find out about where to smoke cigars or they wanted to find out about who's really behind Barack Obama <laughs> <laughs> he's an alien he's an alien from Chicago we're, well of course we're bringing this up because it turns out that in the last week we've heard that back early in November there was a very major sighting at O'Hare Airport and this sighting was reported by about a dozen employees of United Airlines including reportedly an actual pilot. Well, the question is then, should I ever fly United again after this? And the answer is every airline has probably had sightings, so it makes no difference. Absolutely. So the, these airline employees witnessed a structured metal craft. Supposedly it was spinning very rapidly. It was hovering over one of the gates. I think the estimates were that the thing was about 30 feet in diameter. And apparently what happened was that it, I'm not sure how many minutes it was being witnessed, but then it shot straight up and reportedly it was moving so fast, Gene, that it literally left in the cloud into which it disappeared and, and flew through. It left a hole so that it like moved up so quick. Apparently it was outside of a visual range within like a second or two. It shot straight up. There was cloud cover, I think at about 1900 feet. And supposedly from the reports, the thing literally left a hole in the cloud cover where it had shot straight up through, through, through the clouds and completely out of sight. This was reported by, again, about a dozen employees of United to the airline and also to the federal authorities. And uh, in a strange twist, not one that we're not completely uh, surprised about, the, the federal authorities said, well, it's a weather anomaly, it's birds, it's uh, Billy Meyer. <laughs> David. We, I know, we promised, We. I know, I'm sorry. No, it wasn't, it was Billy Meyer himself. You made a liar out of us. You made it a was, liar out of me, we promised never to say the M word. You just said it twice. It was, it was Billy. It was Billy on a goat. He was on a goat flying through the air. It was a Lebanese goat. I'm sorry, did I say something? Okay, but right. seriously, ladies but and seriously. gentlemen, we have a sighting here. The details have been withheld for nearly two months. Finally, they come into the public view, and what happens? It's downplayed. It's right. just completely, just absolutely... Well, first of all, it's not reported in the major media until pretty much the last week. You have airline employees, including a pilot, who says, I saw a structured metal craft. I mean, I mean, you know, what more can they say about this that would make it out to be anything other than a UFO? It was an unidentified flying object. The thing took off at rapid pace. It's being downplayed. In fact, I was reading over the weekend, Gene, that some of the air traffic controllers who worked at O'Hare were making fun of these United employees. Oh, yeah, maybe they were, uh, you know, enjoying uh, Thanksgiving a little early or something like that. I mean, just ridiculous stuff. And here we have what appears to be a legitimate sighting, a major one over an airport. You've got people. People who are used to dealing with airplanes all day long saying this is not one of ours. And it's ignored by the mainstream media. This underscores my frustration. We, we talked about this on the last show with Kevin Randall. This is a recurring theme on the show, Gene. The fact that at this point, if 
UFOs landed on the White House lawn, would we actually hear about it in the New York Times? I wonder about that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Very frustrating. Definitely concerned about this. But that's the way the UFOs have been. I mean, if you go back to the Washington sightings in 1952, UFOs over Washington, D.C., tracked by radar. Oh. oh, it was nothing. It was weather phenomenon. It was this. It was that. It wasn't swamp gas because that phrase wasn't invented until the 1960s. And even then, after all those years, even Dr. Hynek finally managed to live it down. Yeah. At this point, you'd expect the mainstream media to approach this as real news just because of the fact that people have been conditioned to not being shocked by these kinds of sightings. We have, what, 50 years now of reports, 60 years of all sorts of reports. And as you and I have agreed on the show, I mean, a number of these things are bogus. We know that. When you have a structured metallic craft that appears over an airport and you have qualified people saying this is not something that is of human construction, this is not something that is current aviation technology, it amazes me that the mainstream media just won't touch it. They won't touch it at all. Now, speaking of the mainstream media, last week there was a report that the French Space Agency, the National Space Study Center, CNES, has announced that sometime early this year, whether it's later this month or uh, sometime in February, they're going to put online their primary database of over 1,600 sighting episodes. They're going to put it online for people to be able to peruse and study. Yet another great resource of government-studied UFO accounts, and these apparently represent 30 years of UFO reports in France. I don't know if we've talked about it on the show. I think we haven't, but back in the 50s, France indeed was one of the major UFO flap sites, especially in terms of landed craft and reported sightings of alien creatures. There were a number of them that occurred in France back in the 50s. I wonder if any of those are going to be in this database, but we've got 30 years of sightings that are going to go online. They're putting this stuff up for people to be able to peruse, to study. That was actually something I noticed in Yahoo News. So I don't know if people consider Yahoo News to be mainstream, but there it is. I didn't see anything about this in the New York Times. <laughs> you know, yet we have more disclosure happening, more information coming out. Don't you think this is promising? It's promising but never seems to reach fruition. There's no realization. We always have this promise. In fact, this is the biggest broken promise in the UFO field. I mean, we first heard back in the 1960s that if only the Congress would investigate UFOs, the truth would come out. In the 50s, Major Keogh asked for this. The late Jerry Ford asked for hearings. What did it do? That brought out the Condon Commission. And of course, what did that produce? A document, a whitewash, that was it. So I don't know that all these disclosure efforts have borne any fruit. Year after year, we hear news stories about possible disclosure of the facts about UFOs. Of course, we had Dr. Stephen Greer on twice to talk about the disclosure project. And it appears he's got some pretty good cases, pretty good witnesses, pretty good people working for that. But what has it accomplished, man? Well, we're still, people are still talking about the M word. They're talking about Project Serpo. You have all these red herrings. Do you think O'Hare is going to be any different? I suppose not. You're right in that there is a lot of noise flying around out there. But I'd like to think, Gene, that perhaps we're part of a new wave of people on this scene that are trying to cut through the BS and trying to have rational discussion about this topic. Lately, I've been listening to some of our uh, quote-unquote competitors, some other shows out there who cover UFOs and paranormal topics 
topics. And it's amazing to me how this really, for the most part, is handled as entertainment. People are not asking serious questions, but at the same time, there are a number of people, I like to think we're part of this new wave, if you would, people like Paul Kimball, people like Mac Tonys, people along those lines who are trying to approach this stuff with some new points of view, looking at taking on some radical theories. In our discussion with Mac last week, we talked about this very compelling theory, the crypto-terrestrial theory of UFO sourcing, which is, I think, a very promising line of discussion. It's a very fascinating thing that it explains so much of the weirder stuff of UFO encounters and entity encounters that it's really worth a look and the fact that mac is pursuing this writing a book about it the fact that we were able to have him on the show and have a serious discussion about this i think this is all very positive i'd like to think in the next maybe year or two we could actually open some doors to some new avenues of discussion maybe even gain some actual credibility for this topic something that it's really needed when you've got a major sighting like the O'Hare sighting and it is starting to appear in the mainstream media because of of the fact that when you have an airline pilot who says, I saw this thing, it's a structured craft. It's not lights in the sky. It's not some weather anomaly. This is a real UFO. That gets it back on the table. And I think that, you know, the French putting out this database, that's very compelling. We've talked about Greer a lot on the show. We've had him on a couple of times. There's been a lot of discussion on our discussion forums about uh, Dr. Greer. It's sad that his disclosure project efforts have not met with more solid results. You know, if there's some way we can move that forward, we're going to try. Though I have to say, as you and I have talked about, I offered to go to one of these CSETI events with some video equipment, and Dr. Greer didn't seem interested in pursuing that. So I think when we talk about Greer and we talk about the Disclosure Project, it is important to differentiate that completely from the CSETI effort, and then also realize that in the Disclosure Project, there are some very credible witnesses, and there are some less than credible witnesses. So we have to approach this with deductive reasoning always at the forefront. And we try to approach this show without presenting this gosh golly gee whiz attitude that some of those talk show hosts present. Coming up yeah. next on the Powercast, by the way, we'll be talking to Dennis Balthaser. He'll tell us about the fact that this July, it'll be 60 years Jeez. since the Roswell incident occurred. And Dennis Balthaser will tell us about that that and other subjects next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us 
at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. So, Dennis Balthaser, I gather you've also been following the developments in this O'Hare UFO case from back in November. Have you learned anything interesting about it? Uh, the fact that the national media has picked it up is, is a good sign. For one thing, I understand United Airlines is denying that their employees saw anything, which is, I guess, typical. But I, I had heard about it when it first happened on the Internet, and these guys were serious, and they showed pictures of O'Hare and things like that. What is everybody's hopeful of is that there were other people that saw it, they may have had cameras or, you know, phone cameras or something that got some pictures, and so far that hasn't come forward. It's something that definitely needs to be followed up on, and the fact that the national media at least broadcasts that it may have happened, I think is a good sign. Well, of course, the federal government, the FAA, is saying it was just some weird weather phenomenon. Yeah, that's that's a typical excuse. You <laughs> <laughs> that or a weather balloon. Well, oh, no, no, it, no, it wasn't <laughs> swamp gas. All right, here's a quote right here. To fly 7 million light years to O'Hare and then have to turn around and go home because your gate was occupied is simply <laughs> unacceptable. Well, well, here's the thing. I mean, we've got details of this report. It was a structured metal craft. It was spinning. It was seen by 12 United Airlines employees, including a pilot. Pilots are trained to see and to evaluate things in the sky. Then the thing apparently shot up so fast and disappeared within a couple of seconds and left a hole in the cloud. So I guess the structured metallic cloud, which was spinning, then flew up and left a hole in another cloud. You got it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you know, there was an incident with America West Airlines some years ago where a flight from, I believe, Dallas to Salt Lake City. Flight attendant had seen something. In fact, I met the flight attendant. He came to Roswell and I talked to him. When they landed, they were met. The pilots were taken to a room by some guys in suits. And when the pilots came out, he told the crew, we did not see anything. What color were the suits? Just asking. You know why. Black. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> but this guy was dead serious. I mean, he was the flight attendant that saw it. And then uh, he said they went up to the cockpit, the pilots saw it, and they followed He followed them for a while. And when they landed, they were met. They had radioed in to control and see if there was anything on radar or anything like that. When they landed, they were met at the gate. The pilots were taken.
taken off to a room and came back and told the crew we didn't see anything. Why? Why are these people being squelched? I don't get it. My theory is that the government has lied to us for so many years that I don't know anybody in the government that could come forward and say we've lied to you because that would open up a can of worms much bigger than just UFOs. Iran, Contra, Watergate, Vietnam, those things are all cover-up. Well, then we're still looking for the weapons of mass destruction. When they yeah. find them, they'll come out with the right. truth, but not until then. And unfortunately, young people, I think, are accepting this way of, of doing things. Uh, you know, years ago, we questioned things. Today, you know, everybody just accepts what, what the government says, and they know they can't do anything about it, so they just accept it. And that's unfortunate, because I think that we've been lied to about a lot of things over the years. Well, I know we have. And UFOs is just one of them. My theory on Roswell is that whatever they got in Roswell, they still don't know what they have. And until they get the military benefit out of it, they will not go public and they'll keep denying it. But at a certain point, that's got to turn on them, Dennis. I mean, at a certain point, the lies and the house of cards, doesn't it get to the point where it can't stand anymore? I just turned 65 years of age. And I used to think that maybe within 10 or 15 years, I'd know some of the truth. And, and I'm beginning to think in my lifetime, I won't know it. But again, I think it's a matter of politicians having lied to us so much that no one can come forward and tell us the truth now. I think they just have to keep cover up as a way of life. Well, that even raises a larger question, which is, do the politicians know anything that is a truth, or are they just as confused as we are? Well, some do. Now, most people don't understand that the President of the United States is probably briefed on UFOs, but he doesn't know any details. Main reason being, he's he can't be trusted. He's a temporary employee. He's there eight years maximum. So the president doesn't have the clearance for this stuff that a lot of people have. I talked to Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man on the moon, a couple of years ago, and, and I wanted to meet him because he knew something about Roswell. He told me Roswell happened, and he also told me we have two governments. We have an elected government, and we have a black government, and the black government pulls the strings. And I said, well, who do they answer to? He said, they don't. I said, they have to answer to somebody. He said, no, he's very few of them involved. And I think it goes back to Majestic 12 and 47 with the Roswell incident. I think there's a group today that probably is controlling things under a different name, different people. But I would think that George Bush Sr., Henry Kissinger, and those type people would be included in it. Hmm. Raises a lot of questions. Let's go to the main one of our discussion today. And that is, of course, Roswell, New Mexico. 60 years, almost 60 years since the incident occurred in July of 1947. So, Dennis Balthaser, what is there about Roswell that makes one want to observe that occasion 60 years later? First of all, I believe the witnesses that we've interviewed over the years, and there's hundreds of them. Secondly, we've been given four excuses for what happened, none of which can be verified as correct, and it just won't go away. I've talked to probably 200 first, second, and third-hand witnesses, people that didn't know each other in 1947, that basically have the same story. And something happened near Roswell in 1947, and, and I'll use that phrase, something happened, because I don't know for a fact what did happen. But something happened that has been covered up almost 60 years. We've been given four excuses for what it was, none of which have held water. And a few of us continue to research it and try to find new witnesses because we still think that there's information out there somewhere that will reveal to us what actually happened. We want to hear from you. 
If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to the truth seeker at Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser, on the occasion of nearly 60 years since the Roswell incident occurred. Now, on last week's episode, we had Kevin D. Randall here, and he says as he continues to investigate the case, he's finding some of the early information may not be as true as he first thought, but that other stories do hold up. So having talked to all these witnesses over the years, Dennis, are there any that really didn't meet your expectations? Oh, yeah, quite a few. Frank Kaufman, for one, Frank claimed to have been with intelligence and had gone down to White Sands, saw this thing come in on radar, and went out to the crash site and showed us documents and things like that, and we found out just prior to his death that nearly all the documents he had were hoaxed. Glenn Dennis, the mortician, one of the biggest witnesses there is. I have many questions about him because we've not been able to find any of the witnesses he talked about, the nurse, the six-foot, two-red-headed captain that chewed him out. We haven't been able to find any of those people, and the nurse's story hasn't hasn't jived. Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt were on a wild goose chase for five years with the name he gave them, and then he finally admitted that that wasn't the right name he was trying to protect her. I think there's a lot more to Glenn's story than he's ever revealed, and I think it has a lot to do with his personal life, maybe a relationship he had with a nurse at the time, if there was a nurse. And I'm not even sure there was a nurse, but Glenn was a mortician. There's no doubt about that. He could have been privy to some information, but I don't think what he's sharing is, is actually good information. Another one is James Bond Johnson, who took the pictures in General Ramey's office. He took six pictures. He worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I had the opportunity to meet him a few years ago and interviewed him in depth. And he was claiming some things. But when I first met him, he said he had no knowledge of the Roswell incident other than taking the pictures. And there's no doubt that he did take the pictures. Today, they're in the University of Texas at Arlington Archive Library. Six photographs that were taken by Johnson. But he's embellished his story over the years, and I wondered why and questioned him on that. In fact, the interview I did with him, his son passed that out at the uh, memorial service at his uh, funeral, which surprised me, but proud that he did that. And on the other hand, we have excellent witnesses. Uh, Walter Hawk passed away last year. Walter was a public relations officer out at the base, close personal friend of Colonel Blanchard, the base commander. He was one of the best witnesses we ever had. Jesse Marcel, Jr., son of the intelligence officer. In fact, he's coming out with a book, I believe, in the fall about his experience having handled the material in the kitchen when his dad brought it in from the debris field. So we have a lot of good witnesses that have stood up over the years. Part of the problem with doing this research is trying to weed out the good from the bad, the real from the untrue, and stuff like that. Well, you know, looking at this, it also makes it difficult to understand some of the red herrings that might arise. Let's talk about one other aspect that's attached to Roswell, but maybe shouldn't be there 
Of course, that's the MJ-12 documents. And I've heard so many positive and negative things about it. I begin to wonder whether it's anything that I should even take seriously. So what is your feeling about it? You have to take any information seriously, but the, the key to any research, particularly this type of research, is verification and confirmation of that information. There's a letter written by Harry Truman, President Truman, that had something to do with the Majestic 12, but now we're starting to think that that signature was lifted off of another document and transposed to this letter. So those are the type of things that you'd constantly have to deal with, and, and this research is the most frustrating thing I've ever done. My background is civil engineering, which was a piece of cake compared to trying to do this UFO research. You're constantly running up against walls and excuses and lies, and, and it just it's frustrating at times. Does it ever make you want to just say, I'm going to give it all up, because the one thing we've noticed is we progress in trying to understand UFOs, and I've had several incarnations as a quote-unquote UFO investigator, writer, publisher, now that we have this radio show, which is... I guess, a form for our exploration to satisfy our curiosity and to hope that maybe we'll get a few answers along the way. We find that, number one, there are so many talk shows out there where they just take every ridiculous claim and say, gosh, golly, gee whiz. You know, like Isn't that great? Yeah. Like they're valley people or something. And then well, without mentioning specific cases, we are confronted by the nonsense, if you know make- what I mean. To answer your question, do you get frustrated, the answer is definitely yes, and there are times when you want to quit. There are 2,000 websites on the Roswell incident, which just blows me away because I've got one of the top 10 sites, and 95% of the people that have websites about Roswell have never been here. They never interviewed a witness. They don't know where the crash sites are. It's second and third hand research and and you have to deal with that. And I spent way too much time putting out fires of people that put information out that is bogus or not true. Now, what keeps me going is lucky enough to have a wife that supports me losing two to three thousand dollars a year doing the research. But really what I get my reward from are three things. Interviews like your show where you can share the information with the public and let them decide what they want to believe. Doing lectures or writing editorials like I do. But more importantly than that, I have a section on my website for kids' views on UFOs. And I get emails from kids who are doing reports for school, junior high school, high school, college, or uh, junior college, and they want to do an article about Roswell, and they ask me for answers to questions, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, and then I ask them to send me the report, and I put them on my website, and they think that's cool because they get their information posted on a a well-known website. But those are the things that keep me into it, and I believe We've been lied to for 60 years, and I believe there is truth there somewhere. Whether I'll find it or anybody else, I don't know. But we keep looking for it, and hopefully someone will come forward with some information that will break it open. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www. 
dot F-A-T-E-M-A-G dot com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the truth secret Roswell himself, Dennis Balfazer. He lives in Roswell, New Mexico. And I'll give you one quote. Okay, Stanton Friedman, who has also been a regular on the Paracast, says, Dennis is the researcher in Roswell all the other researchers go to for the answers, which is why Dennis joins us. And, of course, this being the 60th year since the Roswell incident occurred, there's going to be a major event, the Roswell UFO Festival, which will be happening this coming summer. And we'll go into more detail on a future episode. But maybe you can give us, before we progress, a little briefing about that. I, as a researcher, I'm not too crazy about carnal atmospheres and, and things like that when you come to these symposiums. But I also realize the financial benefit to the city of Roswell by having this. For the last few years, it's been a disaster. There haven't been that many people here. It hasn't been organized well. And the mayor decided that next year, being the 60th, he wanted the city to take it over. So he put together a planning committee of about 16 individuals, asked me to be on it and as a researcher and asked if I would help promote it. So I'm contacting all the websites I can find and doing radio interviews like yours to help promote the festival. I have a big lineup. The mayor wants to make it a family-oriented event. He wants so much activity that people won't be able to completely do it in three days. He wants them to come back to Roswell later. So we're really pushing for some big grants from some of the bigger companies in the country to, to help sponsor it. And we've got a good lineup of speakers set up, which I'll go over with you. And uh, it's, it's something we're looking forward to, trying to get Roswell back in the forefront as a symposium. Well, can you mention some of the guests that will be coming on this particular event? Well, we got Stephen Bissett. Richard Dolan, Michael Heiser, John Lear, Nick Redfern, plus a bunch of others. Uh, they're having speakers at the art museum uh, room, which seats 150 people, I believe. Pretty good-sized auditorium. And then they have a smaller auditorium where they'll have other people in there, including myself, uh, Dr. Burleson, who... We'll talk about the Marilyn Monroe, President Kennedy connection, Paul Davis, the producer of the Roswell movie, Italian researcher Paula Harris, Tom Horn, Dr. Roger Lear, Rob Simone, Dr. R.D. Sixkiller Clark, and several others. So there's a, a big lineup of speakers. So far, we've not heard from the UFO Museum as to what they have scheduled. They've been handling the, the symposium for the last few years and aren't too happy that the city took it over, I guess. Hmm. So we're not getting a whole lot of cooperation out of the, the museum. 
him, but I'm sure that Don Schmidt and Stanton Friedman will be part of their speaker list. It's been unfortunate that the, that the museum hasn't taken this and, and involved the community. Last year, they, in fact, went on their, on their website and said if it wasn't sanctioned by the UFO Museum, it wasn't part of the festival. And the mayor's intent <sighs> is to have everybody involved in the community. The more people we can get involved, the better it is for the town. Sure. Fourth of July falls on a Sunday, and the mayor and I talked about that, and I said we need to remember what the Fourth of July is. It's not the UFO Festival. The Fourth of July is our Independence Day. So he set that date aside. The uh, the Fourth of July will be set aside for the those that want to celebrate Independence Day and honor our veterans. It's uh, community and church activities planned for the Fourth, and a, a tremendous fireworks display that night. And then the UFO Festival will start July fifth and run through the eighth. So it's a separate entity from as it was in, in years past. A lot of dissension last year because some of the churches wanted to have some activities for the 4th and, and they weren't sanctioned and there was a lot of bad feelings. Mm. And the mayor saw that and said, well, that's it. You know, we're going to take this over and do it right. Dennis, uh, there was one name that you mentioned in that lineup, Nick Redfern, who was the author of a book called Body Snatchers in the Desert, The Horrible right. Truth at the Heart of the Roswell Story. I'm curious to know what you think about his book, given that he'll be at this event, and given that his book deals with a whole other potential scenario for what might have happened in 1947. I've talked to Stanton Friedman about the book. Uh, I've not read it myself. I've seen some uh, reviews of it. Some of the information in there is totally bogus. He, he's just way off and left field on some of this stuff. This many years later, if it was what he said it was, we would have known about it, and, and we don't. I think there are possibilities of, of what happened here other than what most of us think, but thus far they haven't been brought forward with any anything to validate them. It'll be interesting to see how Nick handles it because he's, he's received a lot of criticism about the book via the Internet and things like that. But I know Nick, and he's a good old boy and, and, and all that, but you know I think he's off base on, on his theory on this. Well, this is the, the thing I'm wondering is that right now there are – it's almost like there's a whole new generation of people coming into the research field in terms of ufology who are trying to create new dialogues, new theories about what this is all about. Nick is one of an example of this, of a bunch of people who are offering new ideas for what might be behind UFOs. And on a recent show, we talked extensively about something called the crypto-terrestrial theory, this idea that perhaps part of what we're dealing with is not interstellar visitors, but perhaps interdimensional visitors. Yeah. That's not to say that all of these episodes are, are, are of that type, but essentially the idea is that we have to study all the potential sources of these ships, of these beings. What's your thoughts about the crypto-terrestrial theory while we have you well, this, on the air? This dimension thing, and, and I'm not well-versed on it, but I, I don't rule that out. That That is a distinct possibility that it's something from our past or our future even. I don't, I can't speak intelligently about it, but I certainly don't rule it out. I, I leave that as an, as an option. Ninety percent of what people see when they see something is explainable, either as a natural phenomenon of aircraft, a, a balloon, mm -hmm. or something. Right. So 90% of what people see is explainable. That only leaves 10%, but that 10% to me is very important because we don't know what that is. Right. As far as theories, you take the, the Air Force, uh, the last one they came out, of course, was the crash test dummies, which weren't used until six years after the incident happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, we're back to verification, confirmation on, on information. Are you going to have at this event, is there any plan to have some 
surviving witnesses give public testimony about their experiences? To my knowledge, we don't have any scheduled. We're losing them fairly fast. Last right. few years, we lost Walter Hall, like I mentioned, the, mm-hmm. the public relations officer. We, we lost Dee Proctor, who was the young kid who went out to the crash site with the rancher, with Mac Brazel. We lost Frank Kaufman. We lost James Bond Johnson. We're running out of time for witnesses because those guys that were here that are still alive are in their 80s or later if they're still alive. And that's one hope we have is that someone will come forward with a deathbed confession at some point. Right. I still look for new witnesses, and I, I found one within the last two months who claimed to have flown the bodies from here to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. I look all over the world for these witnesses, and this guy lives 30 miles from me. I got word about him, and I called him, and he said that he flew freight out of the Pacific for nine years between the the Far East and Hawaii, and he said he was told to pick up a load in Hawaii and come to California, drop it, and report to Roswell, which he did. He was flying a C-24, and he came to Roswell. They loaded him up. He flew to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio. They opened a hangar, and there was another C-24 in there being unloaded. They pulled him in, closed the door, unloaded him, told him to go back to California. He never made that trip. I'm doing some checking on his military records now. He flew the Berlin airlift for a year after that, and as soon as I get the records back from St. Louis running, I'm going to interview him and, and see what I can find out about him. This is key witness if I keep it holds up. See, this is but the exact kind of it. Right, but that's the kind of person you really need to have speaking at this event. Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the truth secret Roswell himself. Dennis Balthaser, 60 years, nearly 60 years of Roswell. David, you're about to make a comment, a question. Well, it seems like this kind of fellow is the exact perfect kind of a guest to have at the event be one of the primary speakers. I mean, it's certainly compelling to have people like Nick Redfern and Stanton Friedman and uh, Richard Dolan, which I think is probably one of the most important researchers today, and now I'm thinking, Gene, maybe we need to be at this event so we can go meet Richard Dolan. David, the problem we run into is this guy doesn't want to go public at this time. He said he talked Mm -hmm. to me privately, uh, gave me information. It's going to be my job to try to convince him to go public with it, if he will. And this is the problem I run into with witnesses. I'll call a witness, and and I'll ask him about being here in 1947. He said, no, I wasn't there. And then I have a copy of the Roswell Army Airfield yearbook from 47 which shows all pictures and of all the people in the squadrons and where they were, their ranks and stuff like that. So I'll tell him, I'm looking at your picture. You were in squadron such and such. Your rank was this and that. Well, then he knows I had him. 
So he said, yeah, I was there, but I'm not going to talk about it. When I asked them why, they said, I was told by my government not to talk about it, and I won't. And there's not a whole lot I can do about it when they tell me that. Uh, there is still fear, their personal safety, their retirement. They have a handle on this thing, guys. And... Uh, my experience uh, with the government in 97, I went to Oklahoma to get a piece of metal. Fella claimed his dad had, he was a guard here and the MPs and stuff like that. I was met by two people that claimed to have been United States Air Force Office Special Investigation agents. Spent three and a half hours with them. Changed my life. I wasn't ready for it. I had no idea that was going to happen. And for about five days when I got home, I was paranoid. I turned the ignition on my truck. I didn't know what would happen. Didn't know what I'd find in my residence when I got home. And basically, I was told if I keep messing with the Air Force, I'm barking up the wrong alley. Click. That was a threat. But it's something you learn to live with. I can't ignore it. My phone's tapped. My email's monitored. That's the game they play. I'm convinced that you can talk all you want because they can deny everything. But if you start getting close to a witness or to physical evidence, then you start feeling pressure. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Corson, who wrote the book Day After Roswell, had talked to him about this, and he made some pretty wild accusations in his book. And he was never bothered by anybody in the government. But they can deny everything. Until someone comes forward, with the factual information, you know, it's my word against theirs, what happened. Well, but do you think that he wasn't bothered because perhaps the credibility of his claims was less than solid? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good death. possibility. I like the guy as a person. He's really likable and had a distinguished military career, really respected in Italy. Stan and I did a lot of checking on him, and, of course, there's no references in the back of the book, which was the first thing that bothered me. You know, all these accusations, but nothing to back it. Mm-hmm. And then he said he was with the NSA. We never have found anything that he was ever a member of the NSA or anything he claimed to have been. He claimed that microchips were invented because he had given the information to industry. Well, we know microchips were invented by Texas Instruments. We know when, but the guy got a Nobel Prize for it. Exactly. So there's a lot of information that Corso came forward with, but again, it's like science fiction. You know, there's truth mixed in with false information. It's kind of like disinformation is usually uh, peppered with uh, with some truth to get your attention. And that's what happened to me in Oklahoma. I sat there for three and a half hours with these people, these supposed agents, and he was telling me factual information that I definitely could support. But he was also telling me stuff I had never heard before. So I think he was leading me on to see what I knew and would hit me with this information that I could never verify. It's almost like not only they're trying to spread this information, but they're also trying to gauge how to get that disinformation out at the same time. It, but don't you don't you think that one method would be things like Star Trek, Star Wars, the X-Files and stuff like that? We found that the X-Files, they called, when I was with the museum from 96 to 98, they called us for, for props. They wanted different stuff that we had in the gift shop and stuff like that. Yeah. They were putting out some true stuff on the X-Files. The movie Independence Day, the information about Area 51, a lot of that was accurate. Now, they had asked the Air Force to help them with the movie until the Air Force found out they were going to talk about Area 51 and they declined. But there was a lot of information in that movie, and that may be the government's way of filtering that stuff out to the people in a slow, progressive method to try to inform them of what's going on. Well, of course, the movie Independence Day, let's face it, for the most part, it was just a silly 
popcorn movie. A lot of mm-hmm. fun, nice performances. I enjoy it. You know, if you mm-hmm. you have to kind of though put your logic on hold when you watch it. So yeah. even if there was legitimate information about Area 51, you kind of ignore it because of the fact that the movie is so ridiculous. Of course, there's that that remark that Judd Hirsch made in the movie that you don't think when they asked about the black budget, you don't think they spend seven hundred dollars on toilet seats, do you? Something like that. I'm just paraphrasing it. But in fact, they do. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. There, there was factual information. When the president said this place doesn't exist, he probably didn't know what, what all was involved with it. And then his national security advisor said, well, you know about plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I think that's their their way, maybe, of, of letting some of the information filter out, not admitting to anything, and, and that may be the way we finally get the truth, is, you know, that all the information comes out, and they don't deny it, and maybe that's, that's the way it'll happen. I don't know. I'm starting to think that's unlikely, though. To reveal any significant amount of the archives that the government has would essentially be to reveal all of it, because the only thing that would happen was that they would then validate so many of the conspiracy theories that are floating around that I think the whole thing would go into overdrive. Did you all see where at 1 a.m. or 12 midnight on New Year's night, the government has agreed that anything over 25 years will be made public? Huh? This We're is talking news. about files. We're talking about millions of files on different things that they say will not be made available to the public. I'll wager my life that UFO stuff is not part of that. No, that... Dennis, where did you see that news item? I didn't hear anything about that. I got it from a researcher in South Carolina, and uh, it involved all agencies of the government, not just military or, or CIA, all agencies, and then they still have the possibility of exempting certain things from being made public. Now, who makes that decision, I'm not sure, but they said there's so much information involved in this that if you send in a freedom of information request, they may look for it, but they have, probably don't even have any idea where the information is because there's so much information. This came out within the last two or three days. I, I saw it on the Internet. Well, I'd love for you to send us a link to that because uh, somehow that, that evaded my radar. I didn't see that. And, and that's fascinating, but like you said, if at that point they throw their hands up and say, well, we're releasing this, all this information, but we don't have it indexed. We don't have it organized yeah. in any way, so don't send in a request because we don't want to do it that. That's. I believe Bill Clinton was the one that started this, that uh, started his first uh, term. I believe it was his intent to release information that was older than 25 years. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. It's all out of this world. 
the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. That raises a larger question, which I'm going to ask in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to the truth secret Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser. It's coming up on 60 years of Roswell. There's going to be a Roswell UFO Festival coming July 5th through 8th in Roswell, New Mexico, featuring lots of people that you recognize from the show, such as Dennis, of course, and Richard Dolan, and Nick Redfern, Dr. Roger Lear, maybe even Stanton Friedman. We'll have to see what happens. If all the political ramifications are taken care of, we have a link, by the way, to that particular event at the Paracast website. Now, the thing here that I would concern myself about is, okay, you would let this information out and you just have a bunch of brown cartons, large cartons, say, okay, here it is. Go get it. But there, of course, are 12 million cartons. So how would you find the documents that you want? Or what is there to guarantee that these documents will really be made public? How could you prove? It. How would you know? I don't know that there's a guarantee. I have run into a lot of trouble with the Roswell incident with freedom of information requests, particularly dealing with witnesses, military people. Ninety percent of the time when I sent in a request for information on a certain individual that was here in 47, when I mentioned Roswell, I get a standard form letter back with a stamp on it saying those records may have been destroyed in a fire at St. Louis in 19. 73, I believe it was. Well, I was in the military three years. I know they keep records. They keep more than one copy of records. I tried to get information on the pictures taken by uh, James Bond Johnson because there was a 31-page article in the Air Force report back in 94 by Colonel Weaver, and Colonel Weaver is an outright liar. The information he had in there was that the pictures were analyzed by a national laboratory, more than likely would have been the, the CIA and that they couldn't find anything on the pictures. Well, we have several researchers that have been working with those pictures, and so far, the telegram that General Ramey is holding, they're starting to read that telegram because the print is facing the camera. And there's words like victims of the wreck. Weather balloons didn't have victims. So if some researcher with some equipment, some computer equipment, can decipher that and read it, Certainly the CIA has equipment that could read it, and I requested for five years, I was working a, a freedom of information request wanting to know who the lab was. I wanted the paperwork to and from the lab, what they found out, and I, I was just running around. I, was, I started with the head of the Air Force. In, at the Pentagon. And then I went to uh, the air base in uh, Alabama, which is the archives, the historical archives for the Air Force. Spent about two years, three years with that guy. He went from a second lieutenant to a major doing our, our communication time. And I told him, I said, if you keep this up, you're going to be a general or retire before you give me any answers because <laughs> of the delays. And then finally he wrote and said, well, all those records have been transferred to the National Archives, either in Washington or Maryland. We're not sure which one. Well, that means starting all over after five years of freedom of information requests, and that's where the frustration comes in. You know, they won't give me an answer. I asked them, did you talk to Colonel Weaver? Can you get him to give me a statement where he got this information that he has in those 31 pages. No, we don't. That's not part of the Freedom of Information Act. We don't have to do that. So basically the idea is that all they have to do is wear you down, and that's all that's required to keep <laughs> this under wraps. That's it. They just wear you down. 
They've been wearing Stanton down since 1978, but he won't give up. He's, no, he's I saw him. Stanton there over at the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas a few weeks back, and he was just raring to go. That enthusiasm is still there. And it's amazing. Let's face it, that you're a young gentleman at 65 years. Stanton is, what, 74, 75 70, years? Yeah. Yeah, and he's just going strong. It looks like he's never going to stop. Stanton's my idol. He's the one that has... has kind of helped me get along and, and get started. We communicate a lot on, on different things, different witnesses and stuff, and collaborate information. His view of it, and, and sometimes he comes on a little strong, you know, but I try to take the approach that I don't know what happened. I'll give you the information I have and let you decide, and that's, that seems to have worked for me pretty well. Well, it's good that you're not dogmatic about anything that you are looking for I the facts. Be. All I know for a fact is that something happened here in 1947 that our knowledge is still covered up, and I want to know what it was, because I'd much rather go fishing than have all this frustration and expense. <laughs> but I feel it's important, maybe not to me, but to my kids or my grandchildren, and I think somebody has to keep it going. I'm a little concerned that we don't have more young people involved, and that's why I really get such a kick out of helping the kids in high school that want to write reports, because we have them thinking. They're at least, you know, they're at least going the right route by wanting to write a report and do some research. Guys like Richard Dolan, the younger guys that are coming up. John Greenwald is probably one of the best young guys we have with uh, the Black Bolt. But there's very few young people getting involved. Stanton and I have talked about that, you know. We don't even know what we're going to do with our, our files. When, when we pass away, I don't know what my wife plans on doing, but we need to make some arrangements for all that information to be shared somewhere. You'd hope that some really progressive philanthropists would step forward and would create an archive, create a center of study for this topic. That actually leads me to a question, uh, Dennis. You say that you get these correspondences from kids writing reports at uh, you know primary and secondary school levels. Do they ever follow up with you after the fact to tell you how those reports were received by their teachers and their classmates? Oh, yeah. yeah. One of the, one of the requirements that I have is I'll tell them I will help you, providing you sent me a copy of it. Let me know what grade you got on it. And I'm not, not exaggerating. Every one of these kids has got an A, A plus, or a B on his report. One kid did a verbal uh, discussion with his teacher, and he was given 30 minutes more time than any of the other kids that did any other subject. Huh. But that is satisfying to me. It really is. And then some of the kids keep in touch with me. Though I got one the other day from a kid in Rhode Island, and he said, I hadn't talked to you in a while. Just want to know how you were doing. Wish you Happy New Year, and thank you for helping me. And that's my reward right there, you know, just being able to help these kids. I, the first one I ever got was an eighth grade student in New Jersey who had written to a scientist, and the scientist said, I don't mess with that stuff, don't bother me with it. And it destroyed the kid because he was wanting to do a report and he wasn't getting any support. So he wrote to me and said, would you answer a couple of questions? I said, sure. Little did I know, the kid sent me 21 questions. It took me three days to research. <laughs> but he, he got an A-plus on his grade, so that was all worth it. How did the other kids respond to this stuff? Presumably, these, these kids get up in front of, of their peers. They present this information. Are they ridiculed? Do the no. kids... So, yeah, uh, young people in general, I'm finding it like at lectures and, and things like that. Young people in general accept this because, like I said earlier, they grew up with Star Wars and the X-Files. And it's no big deal. The problem we have is those that are keeping it covered up. The young generation pretty well accepts the fact that they're more than likely R.E.T. somewhere. So, you know, they don't get ridiculed. In my 
10, 15 years of doing this professionally full time, I've had very, very little criticism. And I feel fortunate in that, but I think it's the fact that I'm brutally honest. And I rely on that. The quote on my website is always telling the truth means never having to remember anything. Sure. And I try to live by that. Hmm. If you shoot people straight, I think the benefits are going to be there and you'll get more information. I have had researchers talk to witnesses where the witnesses said, I'll never talk to him again because they didn't like his approach, the way he was pressuring them. And when a guy tells me I wasn't there and I'm not going to talk because my government told me not to, there's not a whole lot I can do about it. I can question him, but I I can't pursue it to the point where I'll get the information I want. I have to pretty much drop it. Well, you can't tell a person to ignore the government. Of course, there's always a possibility that it's not the government who brought this requirement, but then, you know, what could you say? Yeah, that's it. It seems like uh, this topic right now, and Gene and I have talked about this a lot on the show, Dennis, people really seem to thrive on conflict and polarization, and, and that's really obvious in the realm of ufology and paranormal topics in general, where people just stake out a position and don't want to have productive discussions about coming to real truth. Now, you brought up Stanton Friedman, who we really like on the show. He's been a great guest, and we really respect him as well. What I will say about Stanton, though, is that he's a little guilty of this problem of staking out a position and defending it and not necessarily discussing possibilities, potential answers. And then that's a little frustrating as well. Yeah, the one thing that Stanton and I probably don't agree on is his take on the Plains of San Augustine, that there were two crafts at a mid-air collision. I have not seen any information to support that, but he will not back away from that one bit. Now, as far as people, I think we all live in our comfort zones and kind of live in a box. We we were raised and, and taught things by our parents, our teachers, our pastors and priests, and, and we pretty much have accepted that. I decided to get out of the box. And it's just fascinating being out of the box. Hey, All right. got to tell you, we're just about out of time. So I want to thank Dennis Balfazer, the truth seeker at Roswell, for joining us on the Paracast. A reminder that we have a link for the Roswell UFO Festival at theparacast.com, so you can learn more about the event, July 5th through 8th. 2007. And by the way, if you do stay in Roswell, the hotels are not $300 a day, okay? You can get a nope. you can get a suite for like $75, $85 a night. It's really really economical with all the modern amenities with high-speed internet everything. So we may go out there, we may see you there. Again, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> again, thank you very much Dennis Ballfazer for joining us on let's, the Paracast. Let's do another one maybe in May or June and we'll give you some details of this for your audience. And uh, they can go to my website, truthseeker.roswell.com, and, and get the information also. Thank you, guys. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. So after talking to Dennis Balfazer, I get the impression once again, certainly reinforced with our original interview with him, is that this is a very sincere person who is not unwilling to admit when some of the evidence isn't backed up by facts. He pointed out mm -hmm. several examples mm -hmm. in the Roswell case where investigations have shown that the claims were not verifiable. So he says, okay, let's forget about that. Let's get on. Let's get on with our business. This is something that my lovely girlfriend and I have been talking about for quite a while now. How does faith integrate to all of this? Because obviously when we talk about UFOs, essentially we're talking about a, 
a topic that requires some level of faith and belief in order to not break up laughing. For someone like myself who's an experiencer, well, as I said on the show before, I don't have to believe anything. I know what I've seen. So whether or not anybody believes me, it really doesn't have any impact on my perception and knowledge of an event that actually occurred. I'm curious to know what would happen to a lot of, for example, Christians who, let's say that as we delve into UFO topics and as we try to uncover the truth about this, let's say that at some point there's this revelation that perhaps Jesus was not the Son of God, but in fact was an alien being planted here by alien species in order to have some kind of an effect on the cultural development of humanity. I'm not saying this is the case, but what happens if all of a sudden this comes out of some reputable UFO incident. Let's say that in Roswell there was an alien that was alive and they took it and they interrogated it. And in the interrogation, this piece of information came out where the thing basically states, Jesus Christ, not the Son of God, not even a, a human being, he's an alien. So what does this do to the church? What does this do to so many people who obviously believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe this is the reason, Gene, that the government is sitting on this stuff. Maybe they know things like this, and to have this come out would so turn the world upside down from the religious point of view that they just can't allow it. What about the fact that the Vatican apparently or allegedly has its own collection of UFO files, a very large collection of UFO files? How do you reconcile those possibilities? Well, at that point, we have to understand that the Vatican does indeed believe in paranormal realities. Well, just the idea that the Jesus story is true. Talk about a paranormal episode. Man, major paranormal episode where, as my uh, my girlfriend Susan has said, yeah, here you've got Jesus who, after the resurrection, basically lights up and goes up into the sky. <laughs> if that's not paranormal, I don't know what is. You, you have stuff like that. Basically, the church is more than interested in paranormal stuff. They believe that exorcisms are real. They can have an effect on demonic possessions. So they're saying that demonic possessions are real. If a demonic possession wasn't a legitimate paranormal episode, why would you even need an exorcism? So, yeah, the church is dealing in strange stuff to begin with. I mean, absolutely true. Where do you draw the line, though? Where do we go from something being an article of faith or belief to something entering the realm of a legitimate paranormal episode? And I know that that combination of words might be causing some of our listeners to grimace or wince a little bit. But I think that there are ridiculous paranormal reports, and then there's what I consider to be the legitimate stuff. It's outside of the realm of normal human experience, but that doesn't mean it's not part of reality. That's the, the area that we inhabit. That's where this show lives, is in the stuff that is not part of normal human experience, but seems to be part of the makeup of the universe, right? Well, that gets to be a larger issue, which is just what does our universe consist of? Do we have many, many universes that kind of exist on parallel planes? Who knows? Okay, I know this is not something, David, that the concept will... I know this is something that... It's the march of the, the soldiers, the tin soldiers, man. We're declaring war. Yes, we are. Well, we're really peace-loving people, I have to tell you. I didn't fight in Vietnam. I didn't fight in Iraq. 
And I'm not old enough to have fought in the Korean conflict, although some of our listeners might disagree with me. What about the Civil War? Weren't you in that one? Well, I didn't want to mention that. <laughs> but okay. you know what? Over the past few years, we have been listening to other paranormal radio shows. There are other shows? Well, they are pretenders, okay? There are other shows that yeah. profess to present information about the paranormal. And for various reasons, David and I have listened to these shows. Mm -hmm. And I still consider my favorite to be the one conducted by the late Long John Neville. Because although he would sometimes pander to his listeners with outrageous guests, Long John could be also sarcastic. He could get his panel. He had a panel of several guests who would just rip into somebody and destroy every remaining bit of their quote-unquote logic. So let me tell you what goes on here. With the Paracast, of course, we decided that we won't necessarily suffer fools gladly. And that means that when people say things that are absolutely ridiculous, we're going to come back and question them. Now, I know there's one radio show out there that falsely claims that all we do after we have a person on the show is to then record a segment once they've left the premises or the conversations ended and rip them apart. Frankly speaking, we don't do that. On a couple of occasions, we've made comments about something someone has said, but it's not the same thing as just attacking everyone, but I think this was a show that maybe resented our presence. Now, normally, the other shows don't acknowledge our existence, but I think that's going to stop because over the past year, the Paracast has gained an enormous presence online. We have a growing audience in Las Vegas. I give you a clue, ladies and gentlemen. Other cities are going to be added soon. So we're coming on strong. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at the
you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. In the first part of the show, we talked to Dennis Spalfazer. And coming up in a few minutes, we'll hear from Robert Damon Schneck, the author of The President's Vampire. And I hope his name wasn't Bela, so <laughs> we'll have to find that out. But right now, we are declaring war on boring paranormal radio. And We're going to fight them. We're going to kill all of them. Well, let's not get too enthusiastic about that. We're going to wipe the floor with their microphones. We're going to put the microphones in their noses, which is where it sounds like half of them have the mics anyway. Well, that's uh, true. We are going to do something that other shows don't do, Gene. We're going to talk about these topics in a serious and measured fashion. We are going to engage our guests and our audience in reasonable discussion of these topics. We are not going to go, ooh, wow, yes, it glows just like Tinkerbell. It glows, therefore it must be from Jupiter. We're not going to do these things. Uh, I'll give you one example. Go ahead. One of the people who was on our radio show off our early episodes, who was a really entertaining guy, very nice guy, but everything he said, I won't say everything, but a lot of what he said wasn't true. He's a jerk. Well, we won't go into that. In any case, he was on this other radio show, which... He's been on that radio show 52 Mm. times, and he spews forth all this great history about how he predicts where the stock market's going to grow. You know who the person is. Yes. Three names. Lies. Has three names. Yes. But you know what? The host just listened and said, wow, gosh, golly, gee whiz. And I said, this person's always wrong. Why aren't you saying something Mm. about it? And you really wanted to get there and twist this guy's neck and say, please, just say, prove what you say is true, because the guy can't. He's a member of the UFO Hall of Shame at UFOWatchdog.com. But this is the kind of paranormal radio that we're here to fight. Not that I really want to complain about, for example, Larry King, but the Larry Kings of paranormal radio have got to realize they're not helping learn what UFOs are all about. They're not helping to learn what those strange creatures are all about, what ghosts are all about, because you can't just accept all the claims as true. They're not all true. There's too much nonsense in these fields, and we're trying to separate the nonsense from what might be real. And there's too much real stuff going on, too, which isn't... Absolutely. Absolutely. In the signal-to-noise ratio, these other shows are noise, and we are going to be signal. I do want to put the question out to our listeners, though, Gene, about how they feel about this. And, and so we'd be curious to hear your thoughts about this, folks. Are you interested in us having on guests who we know are less than legitimate, and we essentially want to really put them to the grind, where we want to basically take them... And tear them down, essentially. I mean, I don't know of of a nicer way to say that, but there are a few guests in particular, Gene, I'm thinking of. Basically, people who we can have on the show whose books I've read, whose websites I've studied, who to me are obviously, uh, they're just full of it. (laughs) People who are taking advantage of people's desire to believe. Does our audience want us to bring these people on and take them apart? Does that serve a purpose, or would they rather we speak to the kinds of guests we tend to have on People who I feel do offer some real insight can actually give us some reasonable answers, some useful information, or should we mix it up? Should we have on the useful people, but every now and then 
bring on somebody to throw to the Lions? I'm wondering what our listeners think about that. And also, the other thing, which is something in the middle, where we bring on somebody who is ostensibly legitimate, and as they progress in their conversations with us, we realize, hey, wait a minute, this person is saying things that we know are just not so. What should we do? Right now, my inclination is just to say, okay, well, if it's not legitimate, let us point out why, and let our listeners understand. And in that sense, we are not going to omit our personal opinions. That's another thing about this. We're going to present what we believe and let you listeners decide what's true and what isn't. It's not that we're trying to go on ego trips here. We don't pretend to be better than anybody else. We don't pretend to be movie stars. We are not movie stars. We're just searchers for the truth. And we're hoping that you'll join us in the journey so we can all learn something. And maybe we'll present something where we think somebody has something authentic to say. And then after 20 or 30 minutes, we realize, hey, this is nonsense. We don't need any more nonsense. We need to do something to separate the wheat from the chaff, and we're going to get in there and explain to this guest that they're saying a few things that aren't necessarily so. Well, yeah, back it up. When you make a claim, look, if you say you've seen a UFO, we don't expect that you're going to have a photograph necessarily. I don't have a photograph of the cigar ship that I saw in 1974 in Caracas, but I did have my brother who was there. And actually, Gene, I'm searching for more information on that episode. I think there's a good chance the next year or a year and a half, I'm going to head down to Venezuela. There's a bunch of stuff that I want to find, and I really do think somewhere in that city, there is a photograph of that ship, which would be a big deal. For me, it would be a big deal for the UFO field, because there are unique aspects to that episode. Unlike a lot of the other shows that are out there, we do have opinions, because certainly in my case, I've lived through paranormal episodes, and I have very strong feelings about them. And we're doing this show because we're looking for answers. We're not just doing something to give people a platform to get up and speak, which is clearly what a lot of the other shows are doing, Gene. You have these guests that come on, make outrageous claims, just spew the most ridiculous nonsense, and these show hosts sit there and say, well, I don't really offer an opinion one way or the other. I'm just enabling the discussion. I'm just providing an outlet for the ideas. Well, that's just ridiculous. Those are people who are doing it for a living, who basically are looking for ratings, who actually want controversy because you know, there's nothing better than a cat fight if you're trying to get an audience. We're not going to do that. If there is a legitimate debate or discussion or even argument to be had, we'll go to that place. But that's not the primary goal here. Primary goal here is to come up with some actual truth. In as much as there is truth to this, we have to recognize that once you believe something, you will distort the truth to conform to that belief. You will change your worldview in order to support that belief, whatever that belief is, and you will basically filter out any real information that contradicts that belief. I think I speak for both of us. We come to the show with the belief that we need to understand what's really going on. If researching this, if talking to people leads us to conclusions that perhaps we're not comfortable with, that's okay with me, Gene. Recently, I went and I spent a couple of days with Jeff Ritzman, just a great guy and who's definitely now become a close friend. 
what Jeff and I spoke about, well, we spoke about a lot of things during our couple of days together, and we're going to have him back on the show soon, I think, to talk about some of these discussions we had. But something that Jeff and I agreed on is that in this journey, no matter what the answers end up really being, if they're things that we don't want to believe, if they're things that we're not comfortable with, we don't care. As long as we get to understand what the truth of this situation is, what is the real source of UFOs, what are these beings truly? Well, whatever that truth is, if it doesn't conform with what we've been conditioned to think, we don't care. Whatever the truth is, that's what we're after, not some preconceived notion. Coming up next on the PowerCast, we'll talk to Robert Damon Schneck. He's author of a book called The President's Vampire, subtitled Strange But True Tales of the United States of America, next on the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. So, Robert, your book is entitled The President's Vampire, and I was having a joke here about what his name might be. But I'll ask you that question. Who was the president's vampire? The president's vampire was a sailor named James Brown, who, according to an article that I found in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, dated 1892. The Brooklyn Eagle. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle, mm. one of my favorite sources for material and notoriously unreliable. You can find stories about carnivorous trees and ghosts and all kinds of strange things in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Anyway, they ran this story that talked about how James Brown had been on a fishing smack out of Boston when members of the crew began to disappear. First one vanished, then another vanished, and the crew panicked, and the captain instituted a search. So the entire ship was searched, and when they went down into the hold, they found one sailor dead and drained of blood, and the other sailor having the blood sucked out of him by James Brown. The other sailor was also dead. Anyway, Brown was put in chains, sent back to Boston and tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, and his death sentence was commuted by President Andrew Johnson to life imprisonment, and he went on to prison and St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital down in Washington, uh, where he supposedly murdered several more inmates and fought like a tiger when he was being moved to the hospital. Now, I thought this was a really neat story. It's got serial killing and vampires and President of the United States, what more could you ask for? So I decided to start digging into it. And after six months of pretty rigorous investigation, I made some interesting discoveries that almost everything in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle article was wrong. They got the date wrong. The two sailors did not vanish, and they did not turn up in the hold. James Brown was not a sailor. He was, according to the article, he was from Portugal. He wasn't from Portugal. He was actually from New Grenada, a country in South America that no longer exists, and he was the ship's cook, not a sailor. 
he did not kill anybody by draining the blood out of their body. He actually got into an argument with one of the sailors, stabbed him with a knife, and killed him. Uh, he did not kill two more people in prison, or if he did, there's no record of it. Uh, so the question then became, where did this story come from? How did this very ordinary Saturday night brawl that ended in a death and ended with a man going to prison turn into a vampire story? And I have no proof of how it might have happened, but I suspect that it might have had something to do with an article that was running in the newspapers a few months before the James Brown story appeared. And that involved a family named Brown who lived in Exeter, Rhode Island. And they were having a problem with the members of the family were dying off from what looked like tuberculosis. But the father of the family, George Brown, got the idea that there was a vampire at work, and that was decimating his family. So when his son, Edwin, started to get very, very sick, they did a little investigating, and they dug up Brown's wife and his two daughters to see if one of them might be the vampire. Well, the wife was very nicely decomposed, so there was no problem there. And the oldest daughter was nicely decomposed, no problem there. But the youngest one, Mercy Brown, she had, if I remember correctly, blood in her heart, and her liver was not decomposed. So it was suspected that maybe she had something to do with it. So those two organs were removed and supposedly burned to ashes and given, and maybe possibly given to Edwin to drink as an antidote for the vampire, for the vampire attack. Hmm. Now, it probably didn't work. No one really knows what happened to Edwin, but Mercy's tombstone is still there and it's, she's generally considered the most famous of several vampires from Rhode Island. And I just suspected that maybe Maybe with the with the points they have in common, they you know, they both feature someone named Brown. They both have New England settings and both appeared in 1892. Whether the two stories might have gotten mixed together and turned up in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle story to make it. Even a little stranger, I also came across a reference to Bram Stoker, who was collecting information for Dracula in 1892, and it is known that Stoker had some clippings from New York newspapers involving vampires. So it's possible that he might have been inspired when he wrote Chapter 7 of Dracula, which describes Dracula's uh, trip from Transylvania to England aboard a Russian ship called the Demeter, in which members of the crew disappear one by one, being devoured by the vampire, I, sus I speculate that maybe that story was inspired by the story that appeared in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. So we've gone from strange events in, in a ship in Boston to one of the most famous novels ever written. In I'm done talking. 34 Easy Steps. No, it's, just, <laughs> it, it's crazy how these things get mixed up and how they get cross-referenced. Does that make you believe that most stories about paranormal stuff that we've read about from the 1700s and the 1800s, maybe even the early 1900s, that these things are kind of accidents, that they're not legitimate? I don't think you have to go back to the 1700s. I think you can go to a story online right now. Stories get mixed together. They, they're retold. They pick up details. I mean, just follow the, follow the growth, the progress of any urban legend. And it from city to city. It changes settings. It changes characters. But yeah. the basic action stays the same. And that can all happen within a few years. 
Yeah, I guess the you know the idea is that when you have more than let's say a generation go by, that at that point the stories get so convoluted. Uh, the other guest on this episode is um, Dennis Balthaser, who talks about the Roswell episode. He's an expert on, on Roswell, New Mexico, and what happened in 1947. Talk about a story getting taken 12 different ways to Sunday. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and that is one of the things that I find so fascinating about this is simply tracking down all the stories. I mean, you find yourself in a maze sometimes. You realize that, like I like happened to me with, with uh, the president's vampire, that almost every detail was wrong. They got the name of the ship right, and they got his name right, and that was about it. And somebody died. And also keep in mind that that was the golden age of yellow journalism. And Mm -hmm. it was a slow news day. I looked at the front page of the paper that day and not much was happening. And maybe they decided to just spice up the front page with a little... Nonsense. A little, uh, something a little more interesting than uh, a man who killed somebody in a knife fight 20 years earlier was being transferred. Hmm. It's like a supermarket tabloid. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is the Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Robert Schneck. He is the author of a collection of some fascinating tales of history called The President's Vampire. The first story, culled from the late, maybe not lamented, Brooklyn Daily Eagle, turned out to be based on something that happened, but a lot of the stuff was made up out of whole cloth. And when you research past unusual events through history, do you find a lot of this stuff going on? Oh, it happens all the time. And, and like I said, that I find that absolutely fascinating. I am never disappointed when I start digging. Well, I'll tell you the truth. When I started digging into the president's vampire, I thought I had come across one of America's first serial killers. And that was actually going to be, that might have ended up as the headline of the story when I finally got it published. Serial killers were not very common in the mid-19th century. And vampire serial killers have never been common. We've had a few in the 20th century but we've had a few of every kind of serial killer in the 20th century. So when I started digging, I said, oh, darn it. It was just a knife fight. 
But then I came across this reference again to the uh, to the Brown family in Rhode Island in the same year, and it just started getting awfully interesting to me anyway, and I hope to the reader. Now, Robert, when we talk about stories, obviously the more removed we are from the source of a story, the more likely we are to get a, an enhanced version of the story. But there's a particular chapter in your book, Chapter 8, The Bridge to Body Island mm-hmm. and The Bye-Bye Man. Um, oh, now, yeah. Yeah. Now, now this story is, is fairly close to you. In that it's very suppose, close. Well, I'd like you to tell our listeners, please, about this episode. Well, it uh, actually happened to a very close friend of mine. It is the only story in the book that uh, I have any personal experience with. That is to say, I have visited the spots that were involved, and I know the person who tells his actual account in the story, and it involved a Ouija board and three young people with a lot of time on their hands. They were living in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin at the time, which is uh, where Georgia O'Keeffe came from, and she hated it. And one of them, my friend who, who wrote this story, he got a Ouija board that had been found in an attic by a friend of his who knew about my friend's interest in the paranormal. Well, so my friend Eli and his girlfriend at the time and a third friend of theirs were going to experiment with this Ouija board. They wanted to do some experiments to see if they could come up with anything paranormal. Something, a piece of info, specifically, my friend wanted a piece of information that couldn't have come from any of their subconscious minds and that they could verify. So they fooled with the Ouija board and they fooled with the Ouija board. They never got a thing out of it. And uh, I, I'm much the same way. I could, you could tie that planchette to the uh, rear bumper of a car and I couldn't get that thing to move. It just does not move for me. But mm-hmm. after a while, two of them, my friend's girlfriend and the other friend, uh, who was also male, they got the planchette to move and they began to get messages. The messages were more your typical spirit messages, kind of new agey stuff about love and good vibrations and messages from the beyond that were comforting. And that was fine with the girl whose whose name is Catherine. She was perfectly content to get these kinds of messages. But my friend Eli, he was not content with it. He found it dull. And... As the messages accumulated, and they began to get a lot of messages, notebooks and notebooks full, and they did some experiments. For example, Eli would write down a question that could be answered with a word or a number, and they were getting good results with finding, with at least guessing whether it had a number answer or a uh, a word answer. There was just the suggestion that maybe there was a little bit of telepathy going on. But apart from that, they were getting references from all these spirits and they were talking to about a dozen of them. They were getting these references to a creature or a figure or somebody that was very menacing and very evil and that none of them wanted to talk about. Well, that, that's just that, that's just waving a red flag to my friend Eli, who is going to track that down. That's what he wants. He wants the scary one. Hmm. So Catherine wanted to stop right then and there when the scary stuff started, but they kind of browbeat her into continuing and they finally got the story out of the Ouija board. All the other spirits left, but there was one spirit that called itself the spirit of the board that finally, after much coercion, began to tell them this story. And the story went like this. 
that uh, a boy had been born in Louisiana sometime around the turn of the 20th century, so maybe he was born around 1912 or in the 1920s or something, and he had been born with albinism and abandoned by his parents and put into an orphanage in Algiers, which is a part of New Orleans that's across the river. It's not a part of the city proper, the part where the French Quarter, everyone knows that part. Algiers survived the hurricane, incidentally. But as this boy grew older, he lost his sight, and he began to run away from the orphanage. But he was always brought back because he was blind, and he was an albino, so finding him wasn't very difficult. Not that hard, yeah. No, no. So they kept bringing him back, and as he got older, he seemed to get angrier and angrier. And finally, he stabbed someone who worked there with a pair of scissors and escaped to the train yards, boarded the trains, and began riding the rails through the South, the American South. Now, something at some point began to change with him, and mutilated bodies supposedly began to turn up along the railroad tracks, bodies that had their eyes missing and their tongues cut out and were very, very messed up. According to the spirit of the board, the boy who had been an albino and had been blind had begun to wear a pair of dark glasses with, that were painted black, and he wore something that looked like a black pea coat like sailors wear and a big slouch hat, and he carried a bag that he it was called the bag of gore, which was like a seaman's sack that was stained with blood and which contained the tongues and the eyes that he cut out. And he used these tongues and eyes to build a monster. He stitched them together into something made from, entirely from tongues and eyes that acted as his eyes because he was blind, yet he wanted to continue killing and he used this monster to help him find his victims now this was just this helped him home in on the victims for the final kill he actually acquired victims because his name acted as a kind of psychic beacon people that heard his name and continued to think about his name summoned him like I said, they, they turned themselves into a kind of beacon, and he was able to home in on them. For as long as you think of his name, or of the little monster that he made, or if, as long as you think of that name either, he will be aware of you, and he will move in, and as long as you're thinking about him, he will eventually find you and do the same terrible thing to you he'd been doing to those other people. Anyway, this really, really freaked out Catherine. She was done with Ouija boards, and... Eli wanted to continue. In fact, he, they were even given a spell for summoning the monster so it would come closer even faster. So presumably this person, this blind albino, yeah. you're, you're calling him the monster, not the thing in the sack of gore. Well, they were both monsters. Well, one was like a pet monster, I guess. Okay. He'd kind of stop being human at some point. I, they don't go into a lot of detail. This is just, is just me working from his account. Right. Anyway, the, the monster that he made, the one that he made out of the tongues and eyes, would whistle. And that would act, act like a bit like a hunting dog. When the murderer heard the whistle, he was able to home in on the victim. And like I said, they had come up with, they were given a spell to make the, the, the man find them even faster. But yeah, we're not, they were not interested in pursuing that, that part of the, uh, the experiment. Anyway, the party broke up after that. 
and uh, one of them went away to a different city. He went to Madison, and the two of them went to a different town. And Catherine and the other, the friend, they began to have trouble sleeping, and the uh, they kept waking up around the same time and uh, around three in the morning, which is traditional. That's for anyone who ever saw the exorcism of Emily Rose. That uh, they make much a big the deal about hour. that movie. Yeah, yeah it's, some people say that it's the way that the demons blaspheme the holy hour when Jesus was supposedly crucified. Some people call it uh, the, wolf, the hour of the wolf when people are born, when people die. Uh, I know the only time I ever saw what might have been paranormal phenomena took place between 3 and 4 in the morning. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is uh-huh. the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Robert Damon Schneck. He is the author of The President's Vampire. Let us proceed with a story that is weird. Oh, all right. Puts the W in weird. Yes. That's, I have a letter jacket with W on it. The, well, as I said, neither of them were sleeping. My friend Eli, he was sleeping fine. Nothing ever happens. He has been trying to get something paranormal to happen to him for the last 30 years completely without results. But things happen to people around him, and something was happening to uh, Catherine and to their other friend. They were having, like I said, nightmares. They were waking up, and finally something happened that was a little too much for both of them. Eli and his girlfriend were crossing a railroad bridge in Wausau, Wisconsin, and it leads to a place called Barker Stewart Island, which is in the Wisconsin River. Now, Barker Stewart Island is down stream from an area where lumberjacks used to drown. They used to push those big log piles on the stream, and there, there was a high mortality rate, and their bodies would wash up on Barker Stewart Island. So it somehow, at some point, got the nickname Body Island. There had also been a gruesome murder there a few years earlier. Strangely, it was this is a strange story in itself. A woman had been coming home from the Prangy Way store where she had worked, and she was found murdered on the bridge and later on her sister was found murdered on her grave in the cemetery but that's another story Mm. Uh, anyway they were crossing the same railroad bridge where the woman was found murdered and the bodies used to wash up they were crossing the bridge and Eli, uh, he, he just told this story last Halloween. I forgot this detail of it. He was crossing the bridge with her, and he saw what he thought was a turtle down in the water, so he had to go down and take a look at the turtle. And while he was down there, she was by herself, and Catherine began to hear whistling. And the whistling got louder and louder. Now, mm. it is a railroad bridge, so whistles are something to be expected. Right. But there was no train coming, and the whistle just kept getting louder, and she lost it. She had a major panic attack. She went running off that bridge, got completely hysterical, and that was it for her, and more or less her, it for her and Eli, too, because they broke up soon after that. Now, the other friend, he was having strange 
things happen too. He had moved to a rooming house in Madison, which was a room in an upstairs of a very pretty house. And one night he could not sleep, and he he uh, draws as uh, just for as a hobby. And he tried to draw for a little while, but he couldn't. And finally, he did fall asleep. He climbed down on the floor for some reason. He went to sleep there. And sometime during the night, a knock came on the door, and he heard Catherine's voice telling him that they were there to take him out to breakfast. Now there was nothing very strange about that. They had come by many times and gone out for breakfast. So he groggily gets up and he starts to get dressed and he looks outside and he realizes it's pitch black outside. And he looks at the clock and he says, it's the middle of the night. And the voice, which still sounds like Catherine, is telling him to come on, get dressed and open the door. Uh, it tells him this a few more times and he and continues to bang on the door. And he is absolutely petrified. He, well, according to Eli, he slipped to the floor and saw in the slit of light underneath the door coming from the hall, he saw the shadows of feet. So there was someone outside the door knocking on it, asking him to let them in, 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 in Catherine's voice. He stayed on the floor till morning, and that was more or less it for him, too. He had enough. And that was where the story, the bridge to Body Island, leaves off, at least as far as the first-hand accounts go. Now, there have been other strange things that are possibly related to it, but you know, that's, that's for, uh, we can talk, talk about that, too, if you like. Now, any of our listeners who just heard this are thinking, well, okay, that's kind of cute, but a guy putting together some kind of a monstrous creature from sewing together body parts, that sounds a little like Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, we've got some Frankenstein. We've got, since it's New Orleans, uh, we've got an element possibly of voodoo. voodoo. Mm-hmm. Well, there's all kinds of things that could be involved. I mean, we've also got a phenomenon that is called the thought form, where some people believe that if a group of people really believe in something, that they can give it a kind of physical reality, even if it's a temporary Project. physical reality. Yeah. Some yeah. people call it a tulpa. In fact, the term tulpa, which is supposedly Tibetan, although scholars have trouble have been trouble finding it, was a woman named Alexandra David Neal who went to Tibet and was very involved in mysticism, and she decided that she was going to make a tulpa, and she created this cherubic, that's their, her word for it, this cherubic little monk after six months of intensive concentration. And she was able to get the thing to appear to her, and eventually other people began to see it. But as time went on, it became evil and sly looking and stopped looking so cherubic, and she decided she had to destroy it, and that took six months of intense effort on her part. And there are other stories. Dion Fortune supposedly created a kind of a werewolf out of her rage. And uh, the most interesting to me, though, is was the experiment pursued by the Toronto Society for Psychical Research in 1972 where they created a spirit called Philip that produced seance room phenomena more or less on demand. This uh, technique involved creating a character, having a group come together and knowing that it was a fictional character and give him a backstory, a personality, and create an atmosphere of fun and play the ghost that you create is able to manifest itself by levitating the table, answering questions correctly with raps and knocks, even making wrapping the wall. Then supposedly this really does work. Other people 
have tried it. It's a very simple technique and gotten good results. A few people have, have tried it and gotten frightening results, but they didn't follow the protocols that uh, the Toronto hmm. Society laid out, which really worked pretty well for keeping the thing under control. But anyway, it, it really comes down to practically anyone can make a ghost. You just need a few friends, a little time, and a bit of imagination. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Robert Damon Schneck, author of The President's Vampire, and it covers lots and lots of strange tales. Let me ask you, Robert, of all these stories you've given us so far, and the last one is pretty far out, what do you believe and what don't you believe? Well, I must admit, I think some of the evidence for... Uh Psychical phenomena are, I think some of it's actually pretty good, particularly for a psychokinesis and telepathy and for precognition, seeing the future. I think people have ghostly experiences. I think that uh, people do see ghosts. I don't know what they are. I don't know what their nature is. I think poltergeists are real, but if you believe in PK, then poltergeist is not something so outrageous. For example, I think Bigfoot might be real. Uh, I've been going back and forth on that Patterson film for years, like everybody else has, but the new enhancements to it, boy, it sure looks real to me. I don't know so much about lake monsters anymore. I used to be optimistic, and I don't know what to make out of flying saucers. Well, I, That's I have more or less say, my quick laundry list. You just brought up the Patterson footage. I mean, that, that stabilization of it, to me, makes mm -hmm. it clear that it's faked. Um, now, you see, that's uh, you know, odd. I look at the same thing, yeah. and I say to myself, boy, that looks real to me. And if It looks like a real costume on a real guy. Well, <laughs> you know. well, my question is that why hasn't anybody else been able to come up with something that looks so good? Stop. The problem there, and, and this is, I don't mean to say stop in that way, but this is a topic we've come against in the UFO field, um, which is that if, if there's a photograph or if there's video evidence, then there's this idea that if, if you can't reproduce the evidence, evidence yourself, if you can't duplicate 
the footage, then that's supposed to mean that the footage is legitimate. And I don't know, God knows where that logic came from, but not any kind of deductive reasoning I've ever heard of. Well, so, the, the comment that I hear about the Patterson, and again, I have no investment in the Patterson film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not my no, I, know, I know, sure, sure. But the theme I hear over and over again from the debunkers of the Patterson film is that Patterson made the, made the suit. They, they go into the specifics of how he made it, what it was made out of, who was in the suit, all of that. And my question, again, is if they know all this, why can't anyone else make a decent suit? Patterson didn't right. have a big budget. And since the stabilization brings out more detail rather than less, I mean, for example, it looks to me like we can see toes. Again, I know that this is all very subjective, and it's never going to prove anything. We can go around right. and around with it. Yeah, but it always yeah. comes down to either it looks real to you or it doesn't. And the thing right. looks real to me. Yeah. In terms of ghosts, and, and it's interesting you bring that up, because my own experiences and the some of the footage that I've found online would clearly indicate that there is some kind of a phenomenon going on. And we don't know really what the true physics of it are. I, I don't think we're close to understanding that yet. But clearly, there does seem to be some sort of an ability for energy to manifest itself in this pseudo-human form in an ethereal fashion. It seems tied to some kind of an emotional event or episode that very often it's tied to things like violent deaths. And these are things that have been photographed, that have been captured on film that is really hard to debunk. On our forums, there's a documentary that I've linked to that's up on Google Video that has some video footage of some really amazing stuff. Footage that you look at and you say, there's no way that was fake. This is legitimate evidence of truly paranormal stuff. And I'll tell both of you that there's a story I, I've been sort of holding back that in the next couple of months we are going to talk about on the show, where myself and one of my closest friends witnessed some sort of an apparition we witnessed it at length, close, real close, and we watched it dematerialize right in front of us. This is something that, you know, I, I, there is definitely validity to this. And, Robert, this is why Gene and I are doing the show. We realize that there's some amount of activity that I constantly bring up a 2% figure, that of all of the reported paranormal stuff, that 2% of it is truly unexplained. And it's that 2% that keeps me really interested because clearly there's some stuff going on. And even, like, in your book, the, <laughs> the next thing I'd, like, I'd love for you to talk about to our listeners Listeners is Pedro the Mummy, and this has got to be one of the strangest looking things I've ever seen. Man, is it weird. Well, Pedro is weird, and Pedro also is a little different in that, unlike most paranormal phenomena, most stories, there actually was a physical bit of evidence that mm -hmm. was really looked at by genuine professionals who really knew what they were doing, mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot different than most of the stuff we're talking about. Pedro was discovered. So the, the story goes, the popular story goes, that Pedro was discovered in uh, the uh, Pedro Mountains in 1932 by two amateur prospectors who were doing something called gophering, that is, blowing up sides of the mountain to see if there was any evidence of uh, valuable metal in the mountain. So while they were doing this, they supposedly uncovered, they knocked the stones that were plugging the entrance to a small cave. They crawled inside, and one of them found on a stone shelf, a natural stone shelf, he found this tiny little figure that looked like a wizened old man 
sitting like in Taylor fashion on the shelf. So he took it out. It was taken down to uh, Casper where they tried to sell it to the state, but it was uh, 1932 was the worst year of the Depression, and the state really didn't have money for little mummies, uh, especially little mummies who, strangely enough, had no provenance. That is to say the prospectors couldn't say where they had found it, which still seems very strange to me because it seems if they wanted the money, they would have they should have been able to at least tell them where they found it. Anyway, after that, we kind of lose track of Pedro. He probably appeared at state fairs as, um, uh, as this tiny little mummified old man, and he's only a few inches tall. I think if he was standing up and not sitting cross-legged, he'd only be about 16 inches tall, maybe not even that. Like I said, he appeared at state fairs, and he eventually wound up in the uh, drugstore window in Matite in Wyoming, where he was purchased by a used car dealer in Casper called Ivan Goodman, who was fascinated by Pedro, and he was a collector of oddities. He claimed to have a, a, a diamond that came from the French crown jewels and a bunch of other things. But he got a lot of people interested in Pedro. He was a bit of a showman, and he used uh, Pedro in his ads, and he put a, a specially built display case in his uh, used car office, and uh, somehow he convinced either a radio show to pay for it, or he convinced Professor Harry Shapiro at the American Museum of Natural History to take a look at this thing. Well, Harry Shapiro, you, you think to yourself, okay, the scientist at the American Museum of Natural History is going to look at a former carnival exhibit. That's getting kind of interesting. Thing. Pretty weird. Yeah. There's a man whose name escapes me right now whose job was doing nothing but creating these little weird carnival exhibits. Uh, you can still find him. Uh, his catalog is online. Little mummy men and uh, wolf men and mud men. Anyway, uh, Harry Shapiro probably agreed to do this because he was very interested in the relationship between nutrition and height. So the possibility of finding a Native American remains of a very, very tiny man, of a pygmy, was naturally very interesting to him. Harry Shapiro was also, he was involved with some other interesting stuff, but that's for another time. Anyway, he gave Pedro the once-over, everything they could do in the 1950s, because we're up to about 1952, 1951 here. And he x-rayed him, and he did all the, the tests that he could do at the time. And he believed that uh, Pedro was an anencephalic infant. That is to say, uh, a child that had been born without a brain. Pedro has all the, the appearance of it, the, bug, the buggy eyes, kind of gelatinous-looking head, the long limbs, and the fact that he was so wrinkled and appeared to be an old man was the result of drying. Anyway, he was then taken to the Field Museum in Chicago, where a group of experts also gave him the once-over and came to the same conclusion, although they believed that Pedro was maybe about 25, 30 years old. They really didn't know. Soon after that, Ivan Goodman became very sick with a brain tumor, and he died. And before he died, he told his family, this is the story that I heard, that some very elaborate con game had been set up where this man in an apartment in Brooklyn wanted to buy Pedro or examine him, and so he left him with, with this man, and when he returned to the apartment, it was completely cleaned out, no one knew where he went, and... 
Pedro vanished, and he hasn't been seen since. The rumor oh. is that he's in Florida, and his and Goodman's family is still in Casper, and they still want Pedro back. In fact, not too long ago, a creationist minister offered a ten or twenty thousand dollar reward for his return. I don't know how Pedro ties into creationism, but apparently he does. Anyway, the story had he does somehow wacky stuff man anyway the story had been circulating for years I first came across it in Stranger Than Science by Frank Edwards which is a book that had a, a big effect on me but the uh, like I said the story had been circulating and by the time I got around to writing it I said I thought the whole thing was a hoax I thought I was going to start digging, and it would turn out that the whole thing was a carnival exhibit that someone had hyped up. But no, it was an artifact. Right. But And I was as surprised as anyone to discover that the story was more or less accurate, although there are versions of it, several different versions of it. And there's a body of stories attached to these little mummies in Wyoming that's very interesting. For example, that in 1932, the heads of mummified pygmies were supposedly found in an Eagle's nest, and these mummified heads are still in the uh, in the uh, collection of the, the uh, college in Wyoming. But a little examination, it turns out that they were made from turnips, probably turnips. <laughs> and the idea is, nearly as I can tell, they were probably being manufactured to sell to tourists. As, le as legitimate pygmy heads, because keep in mind, this was 1932. It was the worst year of the Depression. Yeah. Have and to make a buck somehow. We have about a minute left, so... Oh, is oh, that all? Oh, I'm sorry. We need to start wrapping it. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, they have since found another mummy and given it genetic testing, and apparently this is going to turn this story's going to turn out to be a lot more interesting than anyone thought. We're waiting for mm. Dr. George Gill to release his findings. This has been some collection of stories. The book is called the president's vampire and the subtitle is strange but true tales of the united states of america and what robert damon schneck does is serve as the investigative reporter to find the real story behind some stories that might have been a little fanciful robert thanks for joining us oh, on the paracast hope we can do this again soon Indeed. thanks robert great right, bye-bye the paracast with gene steinberg and david Piedney is a production of making the impossible incorporated Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.